Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. According to the World Health Organization, 800,000 people die due to suicide every year. My guest today, Bob Philbin, is helping to pioneer a way to sharply reduce that number. Bob Philbin is the chief data scientist of Crisis Text Line. This is a text-based mental health crisis intervention platform that is currently operational in the United States, Canada, and the United Kingdom. Individuals in crisis are able to text trained mental health workers anonymously who can then help them through their emergency. Hundreds of millions of messages have been exchanged since the launch of Crisis Text Line, which is providing researchers with key insights into how to prevent self-harm. This is a really interesting conversation about a crucial health issue that is indeed a global health issue. And as Bob Philbin explains, Crisis Text Line has big global plans. This episode is part of a content partnership with the Skoll Foundation to showcase the work of the 2019 recipients of the Skoll Award for Social Entrepreneurship. Crisis Text Line is one of the awardees. The Skoll Awards distinguish transformative leaders whose organizations disrupt the status quo, drive sustainable large-scale change, and are poised to create an even greater impact on the world. Recipients receive $1.5 million in core support investments to scale up their work. And now here is my conversation with Bob Philbin of Crisis Text Line. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. So when... Anthony Bourdain died by suicide. Um, what you saw immediately after the fact was a lot of media around it, media attention. That often happens around celebrity suicides. And what we saw as a result is an immediate spike in volume to our service, um, about four times our normal volume coming in of people in crisis and primarily people experiencing suicidal ideation. So these can range from anything from people purely thinking about um, suicide, but not ready to take action to um, a mix of up to the highest risk level, which is people who are at immediate risk of taking actions. Celebrity suicides consistently spark these types of reactions of risk and need, um, not only for us, but for other crisis centers. And so our one of our continued challenges is how do we respond to these, what we call these spikes. Um, and one of the ways we do that, I'll just lay it out at a high level, We use algorithms, we use techniques and tactics to bring more crisis counselors on the platform. We also staff up our supervisors who support and oversee our counselors on the platform. 
I'm happy to talk more about those in detail, but I'll, I can leave it there and um, see if that sparks any interest. Yeah, yeah. So, but, but in general, so there is, I mean, I, I didn't uh, I didn't even realize that there is a sort of correlation between high profile suicides and people um, sort of, you know, getting what you called suicidal ideation. Yes. So in general, we do see a relationship between celebrity suicides and certain other types of, of public events. To give you an example, um, when the the, elect, the presidential election, the last presidential election in the U.S. happened, that caused an 8x increase in volume overnight. Um, and that happened because of a few things. But we saw spikes in texters who were LGBTQ, worried about how they might be treated um, also, people who were experiencing uh, uh, sexual abuse worried about how the conversation around abuse might change as a result. And then people who were the children of immigrants and worried about their families. So we saw specific types of groups, and this is general case, who see their potential risk level change um, tend to reach out in those those moments. Um, one of the most common, though, is this celebrity suicide, which tends to spike volume are related to suicidal ideation. I think because it's in the media, uh, because people are talking about it, um, if there was that latent idea in mind, it can bring it to the surface for people. So so can you just um, walk me through how Crisis Text Line works? Mm -hmm. Sure. And I think one of the things that makes us unique is how we respond to these volatile moments of volume, which are commonplace in crisis care. And I think speaks to the need that we saw in a new approach to crisis counseling, which we take as a data and technology um, approach. So we're the first crisis organization built from the ground up around data and technology. What a crisis service generally is, though, is a way for people experiencing any type of crisis that they define. So being in a hot moment, a, a highly emotional moment, and really a moment where they're at risk of doing harm to themselves or potentially to somebody else. So these are issues like suicide, abuse, self-harm, um, depression, and so on. So one of the um, things that's unique about Crisis Text Line, though, is we are the first large-scale service via texting. We did this because it is a, um, a domain that's been traditionally for adults. There hasn't been a service that's targeted young people, and we had the idea and some data to back this up, that if we offered a service via text, which is the medium that, as we all know, young people trust, that we would offer an opportunity for young people to reach out and get support. So we found that to be true. About 75% of our texters are under the age of 25. About 13% are under the age of 13. And this is one of the highest risk groups for issues like self-harm. So one in five of those texters under the age of 13 are reaching out because they are actively self-harming. Um, so the risk does skew very young and our population skews young because we're on text. We're 24-7, we're any issue, um, and we're available nationally. We're starting to expand internationally as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I, I want to talk to you about that international expansion because yeah. Um, yeah. as as I uh, sort of understand Crisis Text Line and as you've described it, to me, it seems to have so much potential for sort of revolutionizing our approach to, to mental health and, and crisis intervention. But, but we'll save that for a moment because I do want to um, talk about some of like the, the data you gathered and, and mm -hmm. you're the, the chief data scientist. What are some 
sort of top line data. And I suspect you're, you're getting this data by um, analyzing the content of these texts, right? Like looking for keywords and, and, and things like that. Yeah. So, so the result of being a data and technology led organization means that we are collecting um, data differently than other crisis centers and giving a different lens on uh, what data can look like in the crisis space. So I'll say one thing in terms of scale, we just passed our hundred millionth message exchanged with people in crisis. And this is data that we are storing and then analyzing to find unique insights. And what really sets our data set apart is this message content. If you look at traditional data sets in the crisis space, they are surveys run by the CDC or the NIH um, that ask about crisis in the last year. So were you suicidal in the last year? Did you experience abuse, et cetera? These data sets face all kinds of limitations, but think of this as this is how research and our understanding of what crisis looks like. That's been the default for the history of crisis and mental health until now, um, until we are now looking at the actual messages sent by people in crisis. So what's different about that is, one, um, we're looking at data of people who are in the moment of greatest crisis in their life. So instead of reflecting on, on the past year, it's this hot emotional moment. And what we can see is that people think differently and feel differently in the moments. So, for example, instead of saying, were you suicidal in the last year? We hear texters say things like, I don't have the hope to go on till tomorrow or um, I'm standing on a bridge. So we see that the actual language and what that gives us is one, um, I would say, the ability to detect crisis in smarter ways. Meaning based on that first message, we have a very strong sense of not only is somebody thinking about suicide, yes or no, but what risk level are they at in terms of making an attempt on their life in the next 24 hours? Um, so that's one is detection and assessment of risk. Other thing it lets us do is think more strategically about intervention. So if a texter does say something like that, we can see how our counselors respond and we can see what types of messages our counselors can send that move somebody out of that imminent crisis moment, that high risk moment. To give you an example there, we found that words like brave, smart, and proud are three of the most effective words that our counselors can use to move someone out of crisis. So for example, um, it was so brave of you to reach out tonight, or I'm so proud of you for telling your friend about this crisis that you're going through. So those words give power to the texter um, and give them a sense of control over something where they felt hopeless, felt like it was out of their control. And that lack of control or power is often where crisis um, stems from. So those are a few quick examples of how data can give us insights, not only to um, detect crisis, but how to intervene in smarter ways. So I guess, it, you know, it's sort of intuitive that using data um, would sort of sharpen the individual uh, responders ability to, to sort of intervene in an effective way. Um, you know, sort of taking a step back, are there any um, like policy lessons uh, that can be drawn uh, from your, your data and your analytics of the, of that data? That's a great question. I think we are seeing that product can inform policy. So to give you an example in the crisis space, one default policy was that People, um, and so this is just uh, when I think about policy, I'm talking right now about for crisis centers, and then we could have a discussion about when we think about sort of um, federal level. But for crisis centers, the default policy was we respond to texters or to people in crisis in the order in which they, they text in or call in. 
So a time-based cue system. So if there's ever a wait, which often happens around moments like Anthony Bourdain dying by suicide, some centers can see long wait times. So the problem, though, is if you have somebody who's highly suicidal who falls to the bottom of that wait queue, they could wait a long time even though they need um, and are at risk in the moment. So what we said is we think the policy should be we respond to texters in the order of severity. So if you're at high risk for an imminent suicide attempt, you should go to the top. And then people who are um, experiencing a relationship issue or something less urgent would float further down. We've done this based on... Uh, the message content, the data that we collect, and then looking at what do texters who are at imminent risk of suicide say differently in their first message from other texters. We found that there are phrases like uh, bridge um, or uh, words like gun, military, that are better predictors of imminent risk of a suicide attempt than the word suicide in itself. So bridge is a three times stronger indicator. Military is four times stronger. And then one of the best predictors is something that almost everyone has in their home, which is um, ibuprofen, Advil, these over-the-counter drugs. So if those are used as a word in the first sentence by a texter, they're nine times as likely to make a suicide attempt than if they use the word suicide. I, I can see how that's sort of changing and, and in many ways it's seeming like revolutionizing individual responses. Um, <laughs> but but I, I have to imagine that researchers um, outside crisis text line um, have analyzed your data um, to make sort of you know, bigger, bigger conclusions, uh, I suppose, about, yeah. Yeah, about issues that might affect sort of government policy or state or even federal level. Sure. So one example there, I, I would say where we are now in terms of that process of turning data into policy is at the research level. So researchers finding um, unique insights about how people are experiencing crisis that our data set, because we collect the actual conversation content, gives us a lens into. So can, you example, example, yeah. can you give an example? Yeah. Can you give an example of some of that research? Yeah. So um, one example is a team out of the Children's Hospital of Colorado that was looking at abuse of minors and how crisis text line or how a text-based crisis service might allow people to open up uh, or young people to open up in a way they hadn't been able to before. Because one common pattern is that um, that uh, minors do not report abuse and for many reasons, but one, they, they tend not to tell adults um, because of fear, because of lack of access to the right adult, but for many reasons, underreporting. So these researchers found that texting is a way for young people to open up about experiences of abuse um, to adults in a way they'd never had been able to before. And the assumption there is that there is an honesty and, and um, what, what young people talk about is, is a sense of privacy. There's a distance when you text that makes it feel a lot more comfortable to share this type of information than if you're face-to-face -face or even on the phone. Um, so one, these researchers found that texting can be a way, a gateway to um, young people talking about their experiences of abuse. And two, the language that they use is not, they don't identify as being abused. They talk about things like being hit or their parents being mean. So there are these indirect indicators that a young person is experiencing abuse that if we're going to take um, identifying seriously, we have to move away from the traditional academic language of did the person say they were abused, yes or no, to a broader set of, of indicators like 
saying that their parents were mean. So these are two ideas coming out of this research that I think have a lot of policy implications for how do we make sure we're supporting um, young people telling the stories of them being abused and getting them to care. So you are operational in the United States and Canada at the moment, but you uh, and I also and the UK. Yeah. Uh, but mm -hmm. you're looking for a few uh, future international expansion. Yeah. So um, we started with the relatively the easiest step, which is moving to other English speaking mm -hmm. countries, making sure that we could meet the privacy, security, and technical requirements of moving into multiple countries. So GDPR is one of the big topics for um, international companies, which is a privacy um, uh, gateway in, in the in the European Union. Um, are you protecting textures data? And so we're doing that. We're meeting those requirements. The next step is to move multilingual. So we actually tested this out already by going to French um, in Canada. And we're finding that uh, one, our, our algorithms are translating re relatively well. So as we move into multiple languages, can we still identify textures at high risk and take learnings about how to counsel effectively? So the next step is to move into Latin America as well as uh, South Africa. So those are uh, plans that we have for uh, 2020. I mean, I guess what's so interesting to me about what you are doing, you know, I sort of come to um, crisis text line from like a global health perspective and, you know, knowing that, you know, the World Health Organization and, and other groups are more and more frequently placing the emphasis on mental health, on suicide prevention. And it just sounds like the, the bones of, of what you're doing is so potentially scalable to anyone who has a, a mobile phone, which is just about like everyone on the planet. Yeah, exactly. So as we move internationally, we think that the mobile phone is, one, it's the way people talk currently, and then two, it's going to be a gateway for much of the world. So we know that's not going to be just on SMS, though, in the U.S., our primary way of communicating via text is SMS. Mm -hmm. uh, but we're also on WhatsApp and Facebook Messenger. Um, as we expand internationally, we know the, the use of those other mediums for communication via text are going to be the primary ones because um, SMS is expensive. So the nice thing about text is we can continue to move on to different platforms that people are using around the world and continue to meet people where they are. So it's a very flexible medium to reach um, really where the majority of the world is communicating. What what possibilities do you see in sort of your your global expansion? I mean, uh, like what what um, are your key what, what sort of what will your sort of measures of success be? And and I guess how scalable do you see Crisis Text Line? Yeah, so I think um, one of the things we're most excited about is creating services where there are very few crisis services currently available. In the U.S., one thing that we see is that we tend to skew rural, young, and low income. We think this is going to hold true when we go international, partially because we are on a medium that is most accessible. Um, technically speaking, texting is just more accessible. So we think this is going to hold true, and we're going to reach populations that have very few outlets for crisis and mental health care. I think one stat that is one of my favorite is about two-thirds of our texters in the U.S. mentioned something they've never shared before um, in their life about their mental health. I expect that percent to increase further as we go abroad. So I think what we'll see is that it is a gateway to mental health care for a lot of people. The other thing that's very exciting to me is the power of the data and getting potentially a first global look at 
crisis and how people talk about crisis that, again, we could use for detection um, and smarter intervention in crisis around the world. In your initial um, exp- your initial expansions in, in Canada and, and the UK, have you noticed sort of any differences in the kinds of um, issues that that people are texting about, or is there something sort of universal about the kind of um, healthcare mental healthcare crisis that they're experiencing, or is there something like unique to location um, that I- that your data suggests is is you know unique or interesting? Yeah, so I can say that. In the UK, we're seeing higher rates of conversations about suicide and higher rates of conversations about abuse. I don't know why yet, but we're seeing that at a high level. We're seeing that pattern. The next question is why? That's where we start partnering with local researchers who have that context, the deep knowledge that can make sense of this data. But it opens the door to um, seeing patterns that were never seen before like, like those two. And finally, can I ask, how many volunteers at this point do you have, trained volunteers who, who um, you know, are there to respond to people in need? Yeah, so we have about 5,000 in the U.S. and another 1,000 between the U.K. and Canada. And we expect um, over time, we're really seeing this secondary effect, I would say, of our service, which is creating people who are experts in empathy. And one of my favorite things is that our volunteers con- consistently talk about how they use the techniques they learn in their own life with their children, with their friends, other family members um, to better listen. It turns out one of the universal skills that we're teaching is how to listen well and also how to collaboratively problem solve. So these are skills that are useful for moving people out of crisis. But they're also useful for just how you interact and um, really make sure that people around you in your life feel heard. I love your uh, global cadre of, of empathy ambassadors. I, I, I love it. Exactly. Yep. Uh, well, Bob, thank you so much for your time. This is absolutely fascinating. And I, I just, as I said, I, I see just like limitless potential here in, in, in the global health space. Thank you. This was, this was my pleasure. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Bob. That was absolutely fascinating. And yeah, yeah, as I said at the end, I see the potential for this to be really immense and replicable and and scalable across the globe, potentially. And uh, as always, a big thank you to the Skull Foundation for partnering with me around content like this. And I have one more episode for you coming up uh, around the 2019 Skull Awardees for Social Entrepreneurship. Stay tuned for that. All right, we'll see you next time. Bye.